Good to see you all. Thanks for being here today. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Um, I loved, I just had such a sweet time this year with my family and um, I'm really grateful. I love the way, if you pay attention at all to the church calendar, you, you close out the year with Thanksgiving. It's like the way of bringing it all kind of to a head, a way of looking back savoring all that God has done in this past year. And then we transition into Advent, which in many ways is a a discipline of setting our focus on what truly, um, kind of our true north for the year. That that Advent is a way of taking the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, and reflecting on all that that means, all that that has changed, but also reminding of the coming, the second coming that will come, where our hope lies, where we're looking to, what's keeping our focus there in the future. So if you're interested in doing Advent, or if you've heard about Patty talking about these boxes and you don't quite know what that is, um, Advent is just a way of taking a scripture each day to chew on that uh, points us towards um, either a prophetic text about the coming of Jesus, uh, looking at the significance of his birth, or looking forward. And it's a way of just slowing kind of the season down, which can otherwise be kind of a whirlwind that takes place. I, I forget who it was that said it, but she was saying, one writer I was reading was saying after 60 that Christmas comes every 15 minutes. And um, I'm not 60, but I can imagine like time speeds up, right? In the season, even though we keep lengthening it, it goes faster and faster. And so in so many ways, Advent is a way of slowing us down. You, you light a candle for each week of Advent and preparation. There's a beautiful little verse there on um, the way Advent is seen in nature and in wildlife that I've just fallen in love with. So anyway, if you're interested, pick that up. A wonderful little discipline of preparing you for the season. Um, But Thanksgiving, this, this pause where we kind of take stock of all the good that has occurred and, um, you know, I've heard that gratitude is, is more than just simply an emotion, but a practice that we follow. It's a way of, of savoring, of appreciating the good. That, that if we don't pause, we can too often move right through all those good things. They can sort of lose their weightiness and their familiarity. And so taking a moment and reflecting, this is a practice. It's a, oftentimes a discipline. In fact, I was reading this week that, that people have a people that have a regular sort of daily practice of this experience kind of all these side benefits. For instance, better sleep, increased creativity, decreased entitlement, decreased hostility and aggression, increased decision-making skills, decreased blood pressure, on and on, right? This, all these like little subtle side benefits of practicing this appreciation of the good in our lives. And this idea to me is part of the invitation of Thanksgiving. We take a whole day to savor the good. A whole day to, as one author put it, celebrate the good. And I love this expression that Thanksgiving or gratitude is a celebrating of the good. And I was thinking a couple of weeks ago, we have our morning prayer and uh, which by the way, it's on Wednesdays at eight o'clock. If you'd ever like to come, it's delightful. But, um, 
for whatever reason, we were kind of sitting there and laughing about something. And then all of a sudden, Toby walked in and everybody just burst into applause at Toby's arrival. And then I think Corey was right behind her and everybody burst into applause. Corey's here. And then it was Priscilla. And as each Gil, as he arrived, we all just like sort of gave everybody a round of applause as they walked in. Now, you think how silly that sounds. And yet, what to me I noticed is that everybody, as they are applauded, stood up a little straighter. Right? That like to be cheered in. You're like, hey, thanks. And, and I thought, as we were as a family um, celebrating Thanksgiving this last week, my mom had said, well, would you share something? And so we, I actually shared a couple of thoughts from the talk today, but was saying, let's go around and share what we're grateful for. What is the good in our life? And then we just cheered for each person. My like little nephews and nieces, they shared these things. Um, we just cheered. And you could see each person like, oh yeah, this reminder. That sometimes even something like that, which might feel a little bit forced, is like actually a way of bringing our attention back to the things that matter. It's part of why we worship, to draw our hearts to the things that are deeply beautiful, deeply meaningful, that too often in our life we're preoccupied or distracted or worried and lose sight of what really matters. And in the passage today is this prayer of thanksgiving. It's Paul praying his heart of celebrating the goodness of God. And what I love in Ephesians 1, I'm, I kind of think this, like if you had one chapter, if like they said, all right, rip a page out of the Bible and that's all you get for the rest of your life. Ephesians 1 might be a good page to rip out. But it's packed with so many things. And, and one of the reasons for this is that Paul is gushing. And, and I say that because as you look at Paul's grammar here, he basically does a whole chapter of scripture in about two sentences, right? Run on this, then this, then this, then this, then this. And I, I picture as this is coming out of Paul, the, the scribe assisting him is like, whoa, slow down, right? But it's like Paul can't contain himself. And again, the celebration of the good begins with the blessings that we have received from God. And then, as we'll see, is going to shift into a prayer of thanks. And so, because our text in the lectionary begins with the prayer, um, but it feels a little bit like we need some context around it, I thought I would back us up into three. And we're just going to kind of go through the whole chapter here today, if that's all right. So, here we go. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll start with 3 through through 14. Paul says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth, in him. In him we have also received an inheritance, 
because we are predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. And again, there's probably 10 sermons just right there in that passage, right? He's just dropping these statements that God chose you before the beginning of the world to be his blameless adopted children in love. Then he lavishes us with grace and forgiveness that we've been given an eternal inheritance, given the Holy Spirit as a down payment on that inheritance and that it will one day be fully realized. Paul is inviting the church into this reality as he writes this letter, a letter that would have been passed around from church to church in Ephesus. Paul celebrating the goodness of God. And as he goes from this worship, he then shifts into a prayer and it catches my attention that as he, he goes from this place of exuberance, that, that he's going to narrow in and go, this is what I'm thankful for. This is the thing that I praise God for. He says in verse 15, this is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. The word of the Lord. Paul, shifting from worship, this abundance, this bounty, into a deep sense of appreciation for the ones to whom he's writing this letter. What is Paul thankful for? He's thankful for you. For each one of these people in this church in Ephesus. And you would think in this place, like, man, Paul's having a great day, right? Where is Paul when he writes this? He's like sitting on a beach, like just sunning himself going, God, thanks for the beauty all around me. He just got out of the water, went surfing. Like life is good for Paul, right? Like this must be, he's talking about the wealth and the goodness all around him. Except we know historically this is not the case. That Paul is writing this from Rome in prison, chained to a guard 24 hours a day. That Paul is in conditions that are bleak and dismal, writing to a people that are persecuted and struggling. And you would think that Paul would be like, 
God, I pray that all this bad stuff would end so that we can experience the goodness of your blessing. But there's none of that. What you see is that Paul, in this gratitude, a gratitude where he cannot stop giving thanks, is not context dependent. He's not even praying for the context to change. There's no victimization or poor me or God fix this terrible oppressive Roman rule or God give us abundance so that we can actually have more than enough. We see Paul here giving continual thanks to God in spite of these realities of persecution and of poverty, of oppression. And not just in spite, but this transcendent reality that Paul, sitting in this dismal place, is actually experiencing the abundance. And his prayer is going to be that we could experience it too. And before we just jump ahead and go like, yeah, I'm on board, right? I, I think the truth is we say we want that, but, but oftentimes we really don't, at least not in our basic practice that we choose not to celebrate the good and sometimes like go looking for the thing that's wrong. Does anybody relate? Let's find the thing that isn't quite right here. Or if everything is quite right, what might go wrong in the future? That potential worst case that is out there like, yeah, but what about this, right? That we don't necessarily celebrate that, but we certainly fixate on it. We worry and are anxious. We find other people to blame, like, yeah, they're the problem. And we choose that, and we choose the comforts of gossip, right? Doesn't gossip feel good? Tastes good for a second, right? Or we find a mutual enemy, and we, like, rag on that thing, like, yeah, gosh, that's the problem. Except inside, what that does to us, that anxiety feeds on anxiety, Judgment feeds on judgment. And even in that sort of anticipatory grief of like, let me figure out what could possibly go wrong and then solve that thing and obsess over that thing, what what ends up happening is the very opposite of gratitude. That what we do is we end up suffering. If it does actually happen, which I think the the odds are like 20% or less, that any of those things that we're worried about actually come true, But if they do, we've just suffered them twice. Because in all that anticipatory grief, what we do is we take those burdens and worries on as if they're true. And I think those sometimes those thoughts are like bad friendships, but friendships that we return to again and again. They're familiar. And as we talk about gratitude as a practice, we're talking in so many ways about retraining our minds to focus on the things that are good and to appreciate those things that are of ultimate value. I read this week about this concept. This is from Brene Brown. She's talking about foreboding joy. Sometimes we go down this road of like self-preservation or like fear of the future as a way of protecting ourselves from the feeling of vulnerability. She says when we lose our tolerance for vulnerability, joy becomes foreboding 
No emotion is more frightening than joy because we believe if we allow ourselves to feel joy, we're inviting disaster. We start dress rehearsing tragedy in the best moments of our lives in order to stop vulnerability from beating us to the punch. We're terrified of being blindsided by pain, so we practice tragedy and trauma. But there's a huge cost. She goes on to say, when we push away joy, we squander the goodness that we need to build resilience, strength, and courage. That the joy is this thing that gives us the strength to face times that are difficult, to work our way through adversity, to overcome those points where we feel lost or confused. And I love this as Paul is choosing to set his heart on gratitude, what he gives thanks for is what's happening in the church. But I love this. He, he kind of narrows right in on the thing that's at the heart of that that he sees in the church that gives him such a sense of gratitude. And for Paul, that's that they're trusting Jesus. Almost as if that's the whole point. He looks at this church, some of these people he's never met, but he's like, oh, this is what I'm hearing that gives me such joy is that you're trusting Jesus. Not that you're attending church every Sunday, which you should. I mean, as much as you can. <laughs> not that you're reading your Bible every day. Not that your doctrine's all correct. Not that, right? Like all these things that we could tend to think, oh, maybe that, is that at the heart? But Paul's saying, no, no, no. It's about this growing trust relationship with Christ. That is right at the heart. I think for Paul, he would go, that is what it means to be a Christian. That you're becoming more and more like your rabbi. That as a sheep, you're following your shepherd. You're remaining in that place of trust. That even when you experience times of unbelief or doubt, that you're setting your heart on the things that matter most. I love that prayer in Mark where Jesus says to the man, like, if you have faith, anything is possible. And he's like, I do believe, help my unbelief. And I think that's some of the texture of trust. See, if you're just completely confident, you don't really need to trust, right? You're like, it's in that little place of unknown that like, I believe, but do I? It's where we choose to trust. It's in those moments, these kind of dismal moments, or as we see for Paul, these confusing moments where here he is sort of sidelined, not sure of what's going on. I, I talked about this a few weeks ago when we were going through Philippians and how Paul is like the star quarterback and he just gets benched and going like, Jesus, I'm your guy. Like, put me out in the synagogue. That's where I'm great. Let me go preach in the like in the market square. That's where I can be most effective. Paul gets kind of sidelined over here and then all of a sudden realizes, oh, here is not just opportunity, but abundance. How God's even using that situation. When in 2 Corinthians, Paul refers back to this he says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength, so we even despaired of life itself. 
Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And see, Paul understood this like here he is in this kind of frustrating place or this confusing place like, God, what are you really doing here? But he goes, oh, I'll tell you what God is doing here. Above all is building Paul's trust. That in this place where he's unsure, he has this opportunity to exercise his mind to set it on what matters. And as he focuses in on that, he starts practicing the real like heavy lifting. This is like the deep work of transformation. And it happens for us in these trough times, right? In the places where we think we're least inclined to give thanks are like the times for us to exercise that muscle. Right now, I'm reading through screw tape letters again, and I just love it so much. But um, again, this has to be explained. The, the context of this is this correspondence between demons, and they're trying to trip up this human who's kind of a new Christian coming up with all the strategies that are going to stumble him and get in his way. And in this time, this older uncle demon screw tape is saying to the younger Wormwood, like your, your natural assumption might be to take him through hard times, but in some ways this is where their work is most vulnerable. He refers to it as the trough periods and screw tape says it's during such trough periods, much more than the, during the peak periods that it, the subject, that's us, is growing into the sort of creature he, God, wants it to be. Hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. We can drag our patients along by continual tempting because we design them only for the table. And the more their will is interfered with, the better. He cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he's pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy, God's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. And this is what Paul does. We're told he despairs and yet focuses in, sees the opportunity. He's chained to this guard, so he just witnesses to the guard all day. And then all of a sudden finds like, oh, wait, the things that matter are like never at risk. The abundance of God is there and present in spite of, irregardless of context, that the lavish grace is there for him in prison and there for any of us in our troughs and in our low points. And Paul goes on on this run-on prayer of thanksgiving. And at the peak of this prayer, as he's talking about all the things that he's giving um, thanks for, uh, scholars have struggled to find in this sentence, like what is the, if you were going to outline it, what is the object here? What's the point of this long string of all these things interconnected, all these realities, all these promises, what is he getting at? And I'm kind of banking a bit on Tim Keller here, but in his research, he would say that the essence of what Paul is giving like exhortation for is that they would have 
the revelation and the wisdom to see the wealth, the riches. This is what Paul is saying. Because you trust in Jesus, my prayer for you is that you would know the riches. And again, it's not that they would get riches, that they already have them. That any of us, by trusting in Jesus, have the riches. If we can only learn to see them and to savor them. I love that quote that Travis shared last week, which was not a good talk, by the way. I just loved it. But he shared about a quote about abundance not being the opposite of scarcity, but being enough. That, that the riches of God are this sense of just enough. And I, if I may, I want to just say one of these moments of deep gratitude that I feel is for this fundraiser that we just had, which... Um, we haven't had a fundraiser in probably 20 years. And, and there's a reason for that. You know, part of it is I think that we, as a discipline, kind of don't want to make like money this big focal point, right? That that can be kind of overemphasized and exaggerated. But the truth is that most of us are just not very comfortable talking about it, asking for it. And we sat down with actually a friend of mine who was saying, okay, but scripture is filled with discussion about money, about stewardship, about how we value or how we steward the treasures that we've been given. And so to be honest, I, that was um, kind of a step out of my comfort zone for us to go there. And if I'm really honest, felt very vulnerable to cast vision and to say, okay, here's kind of the goal or here's the need. And anyway, I think God's always asking us in that trust to move towards places of uncomfortability. And one of the things that just, to me, I feel like so honored by is the way that that need was met. That how we as a church poured into that, looking forward of where God's taking us, it was just beautiful to me. But the truth is, I don't think that's the riches that's an opportunity and that's meaningful and it's of such value. Generosity is beautiful. But at least as equal, if not more so, is this thing that Paul is going to give thanks for as well, not just that they're trusting Jesus, but they're loving each other. It's sort of the other side. And, and this is the thing, like what I came away from that night was like, oh, this is like us traveling together on the spiritual road, the gift of being a church in that true essence, as Paul says, to be that body, that is part of the riches. Shirley Galatly wrote me this text, and I got a number of texts after that, but I thought this to me gets at the riches. So I'm going to just read it for you here. I asked her permission. She said, oh, Jeff, last night was very beautiful in so many ways. The attention to detail and the thoughtfulness that went into the way the room looked. Kari's beautiful lino cuts and Lindsay's flower arrangements. Corey's sense of not only what things should look like, but how it should feel. But what was most beautiful to me was what you talked about, what you talk about all the time. And that is that there was a humbleness, a sense of servanthood to let me use this gift God has given me to bless you. And I thought that each person that spoke was so authentic 
I know you'd like that word. It was so genuine and sincere and heartfelt and personal. And I loved that. I sat in the room and did not want to leave. I felt loved. I felt safe. I felt very comfortable. It was truly a beautiful night. And I think that's hard to achieve when you're asking people for money. Love you. And I share that. I hope that doesn't sound like too congratulatory. Like, I mean that as like, what are the things that really matter? And do we even notice them when they're there? That what we're invited to are these lives of deep compassion and meaning. And too often we're like cut off on both ends, not trusting God and trusting ourselves. And like all about our own pleasures and our own desires and not giving those away in generosity. And what we're called to is this like deep, meaningful life, but it requires this constant sense of surrender and trust to God. And then this giving of ourselves, pouring ourselves out for the sake of others. And in that, those are the greatest treasures. It always makes me think of this wonderful French film called Babette's Feast. How many of you have seen Babette's Feast? Okay, a couple of you. Um, I'm going to spoil it for you. So uh, this movie came out like in 1986, I think, or 87. And it's this story of a refugee, Babette, who flees the war, leaves Paris, comes to this little fishing village in Denmark. And there she's taken in by these two sisters, Martine and Philippa, who are the daughters of this kind of puritanical pastor who had started a church there. And it's very pietistic. It's very, you know, legalistic. There's a beauty to it, but it's kind of stark and they don't allow themselves to experience pleasure. They eat this like really thin soup every day. And, and so Babette comes into this home and cares for these two. And Babette has nothing to her name except one thing. She has a lottery ticket. And as she's there and she serves these people, she gets drawn in by this small little village where they all go to this church, but they're all fighting with each other. You know, they're all quibbling and have got all this kind of bitterness and resentment that's built over time. And Babette wins the lottery, 10,000 francs. Which I don't know what that is. I, I Probably about 40 grand or something like that. She wins this ticket. And they find out about it. They don't actually hear it from her. I think they discover that fact and they're like, oh great, now that Babette has money, she's out of here, you know? And at that time, they're experiencing the 100 year anniversary of the church that their father had founded many years ago. And so um, Babette says, let me do a feast for you guys. And they're like, well, okay. And she's like a proper French meal. And they're like, oh, okay, well... We love Babette, so we'll just go along with it. And so all this stuff starts showing up, right, in this little fishing village, these crates of wine and lobsters and partridges, and all this stuff starts showing up over time. And that night at the celebration, she serves this community of of like 12 people that are there. And course after course comes out, but before the meal, they're like huddled there, and they're like, they love Babette, so they're like, okay, we just won't taste it. We'll just, we'll eat it, but we won't taste it, right? And so here it comes out, course after course after course. And there's a guest there that night. I think it's the son of somebody from that village who's in the military and he's a high-ranking officer. And he's like, oh my gosh, I haven't had anything like this before. 
He's like, no, there's like one place where I've had a meal like this at this Café Anglaise in France, which as it turns out is where Babette was the chef. And every bite you see him like, oh, and, and everybody else is sitting around. They don't know what to do with it, right? They're like eating it and trying. But the, the coolest thing is that it slowly starts to just overtake them. The beauty of this. And as they eat, there's this like softness that comes into the room until it finally results in them all out, like standing around the well, singing these songs together. And you see all these mending of relationships. And anyway, I always think, you know, like Dostoevsky tells us, beauty will save the world. It's such a picture of that, right? But Martine is like, oh my gosh, like what about the money, Babette? Aren't you leaving? And she goes, that was it. They're like, what? And she's like, yeah, no, for at the Cafe Anglaise, a meal for 12 costs 10,000 francs. And they're like, oh no, like you're poor. And she's like, oh, an artist is never poor. And you see in this picture to me, in some ways it's, it's well, obviously metaphorical, but in some ways quite literal that this sense of like beauty and depth are ways of savoring the deeper things in life. Not just a bite or a taste of something, but the value of that community and the connection that overcomes them, that softens them, that stirs their hearts with grace. And I think what a picture to me of the life that we're invited to live. This one that feels so sacrificial and yet is the deep experience. There's a great, my favorite scene in the movie is Babette finally taking a moment and sitting down and taking a sip of wine and just going, oh, this pause, right? I think too often we're like going through life like chugging wine, right? Or, or consuming as much as we can get and like praying, God, give me more, give me more. Right? And God's saying, slow down. Savor what I've given you. Meister Eckhart says, if the only prayer you said in your whole life was thank you, that would suffice. This prayer of deep gratitude is this one of celebrating, but savoring the goodness. But what we're reminded of is to me the even greater gift not just that this world is filled with good things, but that they've been given. I read this line this week. Remember the day you prayed for the things you have now. And I thought, what I love about that is this reminder that maybe there are things in our life that we didn't know were coming. I think about this, about... The prayers that I've prayed over the last few years, and I think, you know, we've all gone through a period of deep anxiety. When I I think of the gift of this celebration that we had, I, I think of times where things have felt so precarious, where I've taken that worry to God and said, like, oh, help, God. And those times that have felt unsure, Right, I didn't know quite where to go next. And gratitude is this way of not just saying, oh, I'm thankful for today, but to look back and go, oh, you were there all along. 
in those prayers that happened in the troughs. In those prayers that happened where we're like, God, where are you? When we practice gratitude in those cases, when we stay in that place of obedience, all of a sudden it creates this trajectory where we all of a sudden then, looking back, are able to say, you were beside me. You were guiding me. Even in circumstances that seemed bleak, you're turning and using those things for my good, like Paul prays, building trust within me. And I think too often we, we settle for these really small pleasures when instead what we're supposed to do is take those things and see through them to the giver. As it says in Hebrews, the father of lights, the giver of every good and perfect gift. That this is where, again, for Paul, he's going, this is where all the hope lies. And a God of love who lavishes us with grace that frees us from the worries of tomorrow, that comes in and washes us clean from the regrets of the past, that allows us to be in that vulnerable place of joy and just receive, to trust, to set our minds on those things, as Jesus tells us, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. But even that trouble is temporary. It's part of what we celebrate in Advent. That there is an end to all of that that's coming. That even now as we wander, oftentimes some of you may be going through some trough periods. I think for me, Christmas is always like that. I love that high point. But for so many, it's the opposite of that. But at this time, what we do, this reminder at the end of the year as we go into the new is this reminder of seeing this year through this lens. Being invited to look on life as a celebration of the good. Seeing with the eyes of the heart, with wisdom. Some questions for you. First one, are there answered prayers that you've forgotten? What are some of the riches that you've been given that you've overlooked? Listen, that happens like gravity, all right? We get pulled away naturally. I, I think that gratitude is a way of resisting that, remembering, focusing, appreciating. Number two, what are the things that pull you out of your sense of peace? Is it past regrets or future fears? How can a posture of gratitude speak into those realities? How does it pull us instead into the present where we can let go the things that are beyond our control or the things that we can't change and remain simply in that place of grace? Number three, are there earthly riches that have become too important? Things you depend on or can't live without? What might come by letting go of those things that are drawing your heart away from God and others? a reminder to set our affections on first things, on the things that have eternal value, the things that aren't temporary, but the things that will remain. I, I thought we would do this. So let's go ahead and stand. And um, 
To me, one of my favorite psalms of refrain is a familiar one to us all, Psalm 23. But to me, a, a psalm that pulls us into gratitude. And uh, I love this in the New Living because it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. <laughs> I love that. Um, but I thought we'd say this together. Would you say this with me? The Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. For you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And may he lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. God bless you guys. Thanks for being here.